When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and our latest round of listener questions. On today's show, we'll be asking about foreign coaches in MLS. We'll be predicting next year's Champions League and we'll be looking at the managers best suited to take penalties because, of course, we are. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who had the most beautiful, beautiful flowing locks you've ever seen (laughs) in his high school senior year prom photo, Taylor Rockwell. Oh, I wish that were my prom photo. That was instead the sort of like getup that we had to put on. I'm not even sure that's a full suit. I think it's like a fake thing that you put on as an apron and then they take your photo and then you take it off. So you look fancy as a senior. Yes, sir. (laughs) So many more questions have just evolved. Listener, if you're not up to speed on this, please check out the Total Soccer Show Twitter feed where Taylor put up a number of photos from his youth in which... Yeah, one what, there was one in a tux, which apparently now is like a t-shirt tux or something. Oh, man. No, I don't know. Maybe times have changed, but at my high school, and I think a lot of high schools around here, like the seniors get their own special section of the yearbook, and they always have fancy pictures. And sometimes I think you can choose your own. And if you didn't do that or didn't go to a, a portrait studio and get yours taken, as I decidedly did not, then like the last possible day they'll bring in a photographer and you wear their generic like tux smock and take a photo and as you can see from that photo i was super well prepared for the entire experience um graham at least two of us did not do the american high school and uh, collegiate experience did you do one of those yearbooks where you had the like most likely to xyz yes yes that's exactly what i did i i was the the most likely to have a fascination with meat pies and sauce uh Graham Rutherford uh, interjecting there, ladies and gents. Graham, is that true? You actually did one of those? Yeah. Yeah, like most likely to fail. <laughs> I can't, tell, I can't tell if Graham's meat pie thing is real or not. That's how it feels much real. that is kind of baked into his DNA. It does I feel want it real, to be real. I don't think it is. Yeah. Graham, did you go to Bayside High with Zach Morris? I'm confused. Like, did this <laughs> well, I, learned, I learned the other day that in the UK now they have proms at high schools. So... Huh. I think we have just absorbed every American high school movie over the last 20 years. Wow. Wow. That's that's amazing. To be fair, Do I you suddenly have problem. lacrosse teams for no reason? Because if so, then you definitely have. No, we haven't gone that far yet. Okay, I don't okay think. cool. That's next year. That's next we, year. we prank rival schools' mascots and steal their picks and things like that now, maybe? <laughs> Is that an American thing? Sounds like an American thing. I don't know. I've only seen it in movies. I mean, I, I, yes, except that I'm not sure how many schools have a pig for a mascot. That feels like real... Real prime material for mockery. Curly straight. Curly straight. That's how you annoy them with their tails, Taylor, if you didn't know. And um, turn them into spider pig. Yes, sir. We've heard Graham Rudman. We've heard Taylor Rockwell. Also joining us, a man who doesn't keep his knowledge concealed. He keeps his eyes peeled when studying the action on the field. It's the editor of your favorite website, Back Heel, Joe Lowry. Hello. 
Oh, Ryan, the Dr. Seuss rhyming plug. Thank you. That uh, Your check will be in the mail, right? Of course, of course, of course. Um, so much has happened so far. I don't even really know where to go with this other than just to say, I think Graham and Ryan, you both should now have to post uh, photos of yourself from your senior year of high school or... You guys probably don't even call it high school. You probably call it like pre-uni or something like that. But but you should post <laughs> those pictures. I mean, nobody took any pictures of me from the age of about 14 until, well, I'm 30 now. So like now, really, nobody wow. has taken any pictures of me in the last 15 years. Is that for I believe um, prosecutorial reasons, Graham? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you'll need to speak to my lawyer about that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Joe, I was thinking maybe we could see your high school photos, but from now, like, what, six months ago? <laughs> I knew that was coming as soon as I tried to it take it. It's just too easy. I, yeah, resisted that's, that's it. I, I resisted it, Ryan, but I knew you it, wouldn't be able to. It was low-hanging fruit, and that's Ryan Bailey's middle name. So, Oh, that is my raison d'etre, Joe, and you know that. I apologize <laughs> for that. Let's get to some listener questions, why don't we? We'll start off with a regular around these parts. Joey Jadlowski. Hey, Joey. How's it going? Joey! Joe, Joey, Joe, 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 Joey is laying a scenario on us. It's scenario time. What is happening? I don't know. Just words coming out of my face. It's been a loose start. It's okay. Everything's fine. Everything's under control. Joey asks. You can tell it's the summer. You can tell that the European League season is over. (laughs) Messy Ryan summer, everybody. It was a... Yeah, and so on. You've been appointed president of the U.S. Soccer Federation effective January 1st, 2023, posits Joey. Your first decision is whether to back Greg Berhalter through the 2026 World Cup with a new contract that you must decide on day one. No pressure, no pressure. Um, Joey goes on, how high does the USA need to finish in Qatar for you to guarantee him a new contract through 2026? Do you think he's done enough no matter what the results are? Do you think national teams should switch coaches each cycle no matter the results? Hmm, Joe Lowry, Joey has a question for you. So this is a good question. I like this a lot. It was a fun thought experiment. And I just like that Joey's name is Joey because that's also my name. So it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Along with mm-hmm. Joe Scally, we're like the, the three triumphant Joes in American soccer. That's not true. But either way, I like this question. It was a fun thought experiment. I, I cannot bring myself, and this will surprise no one, to come down firmly on one side of this whole issue. Ideally, the U.S. gets out of the group stage. That, to me, feels like the bar for this team. If they get out of the group stage, I think, for the most part, we can consider the World Cup a success. If they don't, it's going to be a bummer, right? It's going to be sad, especially when you look at the potential and the talent on this team. I think getting to the round of 16 is the goal for this team, and I do think that would do a lot for Greg Berhalter's case in terms of coming back to coach what will be the biggest World Cup cycle in the entire history of American soccer. That is the reality of the 2026 World Cup. It is a massive stage. It will be a massive stage for the U.S. men's national team and for soccer in the United States. So this is a big deal. At the same time, I don't think I'm ready to say if the U.S. makes it out of the group stage, which I know I just set that as the bar, I don't think I'm ready to say you automatically bring Greg Berhalter back. And just the same way, if you flip it around, if the U.S. doesn't make it out of the group stage, I don't know that I'll be ready to say, Greg Berhalter, you need to you need to go, right? Even though I'm president in this fictional situation, I don't think I will be prepared to make that call until after we see what the performances are like on the field. If the U.S. gets to the World Cup and they get dominated, but still somehow make it out of the group stage, are any of us really feeling that good about bringing Greg Berhalter back and, and flip it around? If the U.S. goes and doesn't get out of the group stage but play really, really well, 
I'm guessing I'll be higher, at least than some folks, on the idea of bringing Greg Berhalter back. So it shouldn't all boil down to the World Cup. But if we're looking at the World Cup results, it will be a little challenging for me to view it in just such a black and white kind of way, which, again, I'm guessing doesn't surprise anyone. That was the object of the question, was to view it in a black and white way, Joan. And here comes Taylor with an answer. There he is. (laughs) (laughs) All I'm doing is picturing the Dwight Schrute line about how he knows how to sit on a fence. He can even sleep on a fence. The trick is to do it with like face down in the post in your mouth. Joe Lowry also <laughs> a, a champion fence sitter. Yes, uh, I, I will, I will, although I will say up front that my initial reaction to this question was like, well, I don't know if I agree with the premise of this question for the exact reasons Joe has already specified. But if I'm forced to answer, I would say that I think as long as there are competent, cohesive performances, I, I am fine with Greg Berhalter getting that renewal if I'm the, the U.S. soccer president for a couple different reasons, not just because of the performances, but because number one, At this point in time, if you're asking me this question right now, I don't think that there are many logical successors out there. And I know everybody uh, loves Jesse Marsh and gets excited about Jesse Marsh. He's obviously with Leeds right now. And I think my guess would be sees the future of his career, at least in the short term, staying in Europe, managing at club level. So that aside, I don't think there's anybody really set up, poised to take over and take the program on. And it's a program that's full of players who are very young, and a lot of them are in sort of transitional or uncertain situations at club level. I texted Bobby Warshaw about this too, and this was kind of his feeling, is that you've got a bunch of people who, even if they're at big clubs, aren't regular starters. They're not guaranteed starters. You've got players who are going to move this summer, and it's a team that's in flux. It's also a very young team. And so I think if you can get them to play like pretty well at the World Cup, and it seems like the squad is kind of gelling and pretty harmonious, then I don't necessarily see a reason to jump ship just yet. I do tend to worry about that sort of eight-year cycle and fatigue and relying on the same players and a little bit of favoritism. Thus far, I feel like Berhalter has been willing to move players on who started off as favorites but maybe don't quite fit. Sometimes that takes longer than other people would like. And I think also he makes hard decisions on occasion when it comes to the roster. So I think as things stand right now, I, I would give him that renewal. But if we go to the World Cup and implode and there's infighting, then I think we have our answer. All right, so we've heard from Fancy McFencerson and Lord Noncommittal Shire. Graham, how do you feel? You're fired. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. No, I I have a lot of fence sitting in my answer as well, but I feel under pressure to shake things up a little bit here, (laughs) given the the answers before me. No, I'll go a little bit bolder than I have in my notes, right? I think if the US loses all three games in Qatar, no matter how well the US plays... Berhalter doesn't get that renewal. I think this group is too talented to to tolerate that. Um, but I think, as Taylor and Joe have largely said, if if the performances are good enough and you get the sense that the team is moving forward, then I would uh, I think that would be enough to 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 keep Berhalter on. I think twenty twenty two has been a good year for him so far. I personally feel like he's being slightly more pragmatic, which eases some of my concerns I had at the start of the year. My concerns with Berhalter was always he might be a little bit idealistic for tournament knockout football. I'm not sure I've really got those concerns now because I feel like he is working through some problems and issues in a very methodical way, is experimenting, but not too much at the same time. I think he's created a good environment in the camp. But as I say, none of, none of it counts for anything if Qatar is, is a complete bust. And if it is a complete bust, then I would I would make a, a change because the World Cup and major tournaments, that is the that is the gauge of international football. And so if you fail there, then I think you've failed in general. And there's too much riding on, as Joe says, on 2026. The US really needs to perform well at that World Cup. So if you have any doubts on Berhalter leading up to that World Cup, I think you 
you possibly make a change. But I appreciate that there are not many uh, better alternatives out there. You would really need to lure someone like Marsh with a huge contract offer or someone like that to justify it, I think. Weirdly, and, and this doesn't really answer Joey's question, but it's another thought that was bouncing around in my head as I was going to prep for this show. I'm honestly not sure, and I, I, I want to reserve the right to take this back anytime I want, but right now I'm not sure that it matters a ton who the coach is for this next cycle. It's, it's going to be the most talented group of players that the U.S. has ever had. And I think at this point, especially on the international level, the quality of your players is the most important thing about your soccer team. And the U.S. will have better players now than it has ever had. And I, I think they are going to continue to try to distance themselves from at least some of CONCACAF and, and even certainly going to try to distance themselves from Mexico and Canada. Maybe Mexico is already happening and Canada is a little bit of a different story. But I think the U.S. will be well positioned for success. And whatever that looks like between now and 2025, because I don't know exactly what the U.S.'s calendar is going to look like after the World Cup and what the key moments for them are going to be. There'll be a Gold Cup, there'll be Nations League. But beyond that, I think the U.S. will be well positioned for success almost regardless or even in spite of who their manager is just because of the talents that talent that's there I want a good coach to be in charge of this team I think Greg Berhalter has sort of come on to something with this national team right now I think the U.S. is better now than they've ever been under him which makes sense but I don't know right now that I could say I'm really passionate about who should be in charge of that team because I think ultimately it's going to be the players and their increasing talent level and depth that really try to push this team to new heights Joe, I, I might lay you down on my psychiatrist's couch for a moment. You started that comment with words to the effect of it doesn't particularly matter who the coach is in this cycle. Are those not the words of someone who isn't really in love with their coach? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I am not totally in love with Greg Berhalter and I have frustrations about certain things that have happened along the way since 2019, but I'm not itching to, to get him out. At this point, the World Cup qualification campaign was a success in that they hit the bar and we learned some things about this team along the way. I I don't feel really passionately one way or the other, but I do think the focus should be and ultimately will be on the players. Then it's up to the coach to try to get that last 5 or 10% out of them. And that is a valuable 5 or 10%. That's the difference at times. But still, I don't know that the coach is going to be like the difference maker for the U.S. between now and 2026. All I'll say is Argentina had the best team in the world in 2010, gave that team to Diego Maradona, well, yes. and that did be not careful. go so well for them. Be careful. <laughs> I, should, I should point, Grant, that's a great point. There is like a, a bar. I'm not itching for Bruce Arena to be the head coach of the national team again. I think you want someone who is competent, and I... I am optimistic, maybe foolishly so, that U.S. soccer will find that person, whether that's Greg Baralta or someone else, find someone competent. But but within that sphere of competent coaches, I don't know that I have like a horse in this race. Yeah. So basically, Joe, I'll amend it for you. Uh, if we're going to go with the Maradona comparison, then Joe is OK with it being a lot of different people as long as it's not America's Maradona, a.k.a. Breck Shea. No Breck Shea. Correct. And then I think <laughs> whoever it is comes in and manages, we should be fine. My question for you all in response is, are we supposed to love national team managers? Like, I don't think there's – I'm struggling here. I'm sure there's some that, like, I'm just not thinking of. But it feels like more often than not, the national team manager is a thankless job that everybody yeah. has questions about. And only when you win does there seem to be a little bit of love. And even then, there's still the questions yeah, about, even, like, but why didn't you get the best out of this guy? Yeah, exactly. Like, Didier Deschamps has had right. no love. And he has he's turned France into the best team in, in the world. Yeah, absolutely right. If you look through some of the managers – 
that have won World Cups and big titles, then they, they aren't really beloved in the same way that club managers are. They are there just to to do a job. I think Southgate, in, in, a, in a sense, is beloved by a lot of England fans. But then when they lose to Hungary, there is a lot of criticism and people saying he's not the right man for England either. So, yeah, it feels like, as you say, Taylor, a bit of a thankless task. Yeah, almost as if soccer fans are fickle, somewhat. What? Almost. A little bit, little bit. How uh, dare you, thank- Ryan? I'm never speaking to you again. Uh, I'll speak to you next question yeah thanks you'll (laughs) let me again in five minutes Joey thank you very much for the question we go to Christopher Klein now who says is the USMNT better suited to face better teams who play more open soccer for example Morocco and Mexico than they are weaker more physical teams in CONCACAF Um, Taylor what do you think about that one that's an interesting proposition Uh, I would agree. I would agree strongly. The only thing I would disagree with a little bit is I'm not sure it's necessarily because of the physicality. I think the U.S. can handle that, and I think they they oftentimes have to. But I think it's mostly because the U.S., in my opinion, doesn't yet have the technical ability uh, or attacking precision to easily dispatch bunkered teams. And there aren't many teams in the world, especially at international level, that do. Uh, And so I think when you're playing a team with a ton of players in and around their own 18 it requires a, like a, a weird sort of worldy shot from distance, like Tim Weah hit uh, recently with that knuckleball, or it requires a ton of intricate passing to eventually find your way through. And I think what happens there is that those teams, those CONCACAF teams, will sit back, will bunker, will frustrate, knowing that the onus is on the United States to get a result, that they are the favorite, they're the one that's expected to get a result, and then that team can play on the counter. And once they've got one, then it's really, really hard for the U.S. And so... I think when you're going to a World Cup or you're talking about World Cup opposition, where in the World Cup, at least, everybody's trying to win or trying to get a point. And at the same time, when you're talking about stronger opposition who have that same pressure or they're trying to play a more expansive, open style of play, they're less concerned about like stymieing what the United States is going to throw at them. Certainly, there's tactical preparation, but I can't see Belgium thinking, okay, we saw Honduras put 10 in their own box against the United States, and that worked out well, so we'll do the same. You would expect Belgium to think, eh, it's the U.S., we'll do a couple things to game plan for them, but ultimately we'll back ourselves to find a way through, and uh, until Tim Howard can stand on his head again, you would back them to do that, and so I think the United States can then sort of be more defensive, be more reactive, be more uh, counterattack oriented, and I think that can work very much to their advantage, so I, I think... Ultimately, yeah, better, more expansive teams are going to give the United States more opportunity to play, more space to attack. Yeah, I, I think it depends on what constitutes better. I'm not, enti- I'm not entirely sure the US, US are necessarily better against teams that play more open soccer, but I think they can be more dangerous as an, as an attacking outfit. And I think that that Morocco game is the perfect example. So that Morocco game was obviously fun and the end result was good. And I think we learned some things about the squad and the team, but the, the XG showed that Morocco had opportunities. So you maybe don't want to play that open a game that often. And it is sort of rolling the dice a little bit. But what I liked about that game was that it showed that if the US have to play that way, if they are, if they have to change their approach, if they're, they're chasing a late goal or, they're, or they're, they're behind in a game, they can roll that dice and they can be a little bit more dangerous in open play. Whether that results in uh, better results in, in yeah. knockout football, like the World Cup, I'm not so sure because those sort of teams that do play that way in every game, they tend not to get that far in in knockout tournaments. So I I guess it just depends on what better means. Certainly more entertaining and more dangerous in an attacking sense. But as I say, maybe that doesn't translate into results. 
Graham, I completely agree with everything you just said. I, I could not have said that any better. I tried to. I, so Christopher also asked and submitted this question to Backyield. Ryan, you mentioned them earlier. But I just wrote an answer to this question, like maybe last week at the beginning of this week, on the website. And I thought it would be interesting to hear what your guys' perspectives were today. And, and Graham and Taylor, I agree with both of you. The thing that I thought was interesting, Graham, about your point there is – I, I think in the Morocco game and even in the Uruguay game to an extent, the U.S. created chances. They created chances in the first half against Uruguay, not in the second half. But in, in really in the entire game against Morocco, the U.S. created, but they also gave up chances. That was very, very clear. So to your point, I don't know if they're necessarily better against high-quality teams that are going to be a little more open, but they will create better chances, and they likely will be more dangerous going forward. Defensively, it's still a little bit of a question. I think Greg Baralter has made this team a very good defensive group. But we haven't seen them tested against consistently high-octane attacking teams. Mexico a few times, but the the shine on Tato Martino's team has faded, or certainly is fading. And Canada were a little more reactive rather than proactive in the, in the games that the U.S. played against them. So we don't truly know maybe the answer to this question, but in terms of personnel types, I think it is pretty clear that the U.S. can be more dangerous in the attack when they have more open space, like when they can afford to sit a little deeper, when they can afford to press and attack in transition. Christian Pulisic, Tim Weah, Brendan Aronson, uh, Tyler Adams, Weston McKenna, Yunus Musa, the fullbacks. I think all of those players, maybe Sergino Des, not so much, but a lot of those players are more dangerous in transition than they are in possession. And we're just now maybe starting to see some of the U.S.'s quality and possession come through with Yunus Musa sliding a little bit deeper in some of those things. The way that I ended that piece that I wrote for Backfield about this question is looking ahead to the World Cup group stage, because I think that's a natural progression for this team. The U.S. has three opponents in that group stage, England, I guess I should say Wales, then England, then Iran. We don't know exactly how they're going to approach games, but it seems to me that it's more likely that they defend rather than they they step forward and really be aggressive and try to break you down and, and try to be really open. Wales, the first game of the tournament, hasn't had more than 50% possession against a top 50 ranked team in the last calendar year. So they don't like the ball. They will defend, defend, defend. England are notoriously conservative under Gareth Southgate, despite the amount of talent they have. And Iran... I don't know as much about them quite yet, but in their two games against South Korea, who was the best team they played in their AFC qualifying group, they did not control the ball either. So it'll be interesting to see if this team, that this U.S. team is equipped to break down a team, because I know that's kind of the opposite of what Christopher is asking us here, but that might just be what the situation calls for in Qatar. Joe, to further emphasize your point, I went back and looked at that uh that friendly against Wales in 2020, I believe it was. Yep, November, uh, yeah. And that is like a U.S. team that has Conrad De La Fuente in there. Sebastian Legette is in there. Matt Miazga is in there. John Brooks is in there. It's been a while. Uh, that was a nil-nil result. USA had 61% of possession. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we can assume that they will probably have more of the ball against Wales. I think, and I appreciate the distinction that you all are drawing uh, and would agree with it. I would add that I also think just against bunkered teams— the U.S. does sort of to the like the casual fan, I think they look worse because it seems like they don't have ideas. Because even when they are sort of doing a, I guess, their version of tiki-taka and like keeping the ball and moving it and probing for opportunities, eventually that does look like the Simpsons parody of soccer. Whereas if you're sitting and then breaking and playing with speed and, and combining quick little passes, I think that is always going to be more eye-catching and stand out a bit more. So I think, if anything, playing teams that are more open lets the U.S. be more eye-catching, if not like wholly better uh, than playing against more defensive-oriented teams. Do you know what? I like those answers. I like the questions. I like you guys. I like everything. 
Let's have a quick break. We'll come back with more fun stuff. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Um, I love our listeners, as I was saying before the break there, guys. And what I love about them is they are very alliterative. So far, we've had questions from Joey Jaglowski and Christopher Klein. Now we have Richard Rolson. It continues. Uh, MLS has again seen a couple of foreign coaches fired this season, says Richard. What do you think that foreign... What... Why do you think, excuse me, that foreign coaches have difficulty in managing in the MLS? And why do I have difficulty reading words? Is this a problem for MLS? And are there changes that MLS needs to make that changes this? We've had three... um, Foreign coach firings so far this season, Joseph Lowry. Your thoughts on this issue? I think there is something to this trend of international managers coming into MLS from other places and having some difficulty in a few different ways. One of those ways is learning the roster rules. And if we're looking at things that MLS can do to simplify things and make it easier for different coaches of different levels to come in and understand and adapt, and same with front office members, simplify the rules. That's a really easy place to start. Well, it should be an easy place to start. I don't know if it will actually happen anytime soon, but it's a hurdle. I, I really think that. Ryan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Miguel Angel Ramirez talked about some of the challenges associated with the roster rules, and that has been a theme throughout coaches and GMs or technical directors who have come into MLS and tried to adapt. So I think that is really a part of this. I also think that some of the things that these coaches, these international coaches, and so a couple of them that we're talking about here are Miguel Angel Ramirez and Hernan Losada from Charlotte and D.C. respectively, we're both out now. A couple of the things that these coaches did or or do in training and in terms of interacting with other players and, and other members of the club, 
just don't fly in MLS, nor am I sure that they really should fly. So let's go back a year. Gabriel Heinze, with his super wild training methods in Atlanta, players not drinking water. I still don't fully know what went on there, but that's that that shouldn't happen. And it, it wasn't really allowed to happen for any long period of time in Atlanta. Hernan Losada giving at least some of his players genuine body image issues with his fixation on weight. That should never happen. And it, it's good that that's not happening in MLS anymore. And then this one is this one's a little different, but Miguel Angel Ramirez and what we've heard out of Charlotte so far from Christian Fuchs is basically Ramirez's attempts to control the locker room and, and really not being not not welcoming feedback or not really allowing any of that. And we've heard foreign coaches come in, Tata Martino, come in and kind of be standoffish and not directly interacting with players. But it seems like there may have been a little bit of a line crossed with Ramirez and, and the players in Charlotte. So we still don't know everything that happened there. But I do think there's more to it than just MLS is hard. MLS is difficult for international managers to come in and understand. That's That's a piece of it, yes. But I think there is also a case-by-case basis that we need to kind of look through here. I don't know exactly what the issue is with a number of other coaches, but part of it is also MLS just not being very good at identifying talent. Not all of MLS, but Taylor, I know you had David Goss on the show yesterday, and Goss said something very similar to that. Like, like some teams in MLS are not good at identifying either players or coaches or front office members. That's the reality right now. And so I think part of the issue with international coaches is that MLS just maybe hasn't picked all the right ones. I don't know if that's the case with Heinze or Losada or Ramirez, who I think have good soccer ideas, but there were other issues that I've already covered. But, I mean, Cincinnati with Ron Jans and Yap Stam, Phil Neville in Miami, Anthony Hudson, who was in Colorado and is now a member of Greg Berhalter's staff, those coaches are are were not or are not very successful MLS managers, and I think there's more to it than them just being international. I just am not sure they're really that good of coaches. So, so is the biggest stumbling block then, Taylor, the the different rules? And that's something which we've seen a few of these mm-hmm. managers fall foul of. And Miguel Hel Ramirez, for example, saying, I'm not Harry Potter, referring to I can't sort of magic up new new players and new rules. He is a man who could have read about those things before he joined, of course. He could. But I think, and to Joe's point, I, I would agree with all of it. I would then emphasize that like in other situations, uh, if, you're, if you're Eric Ten Hag, a Man United fan referencing Man United, shocker, you can cross that bingo square off. Uh, if you're Eric Ten Hag, you can sort of look at what was happening, understand the basics of how the club is working, but also coming from his background, know how a club should operate, and you can ask for more control. You can ask to have a person who can be a representative, who can oversee certain aspects of things, because you ultimately roughly understand how that club is operating. With Major League Soccer, I don't think foreign coaches can really do that. And so I don't think there's as much of a way for them to exert so much control. You're not going to get a a like manager who's also overseeing transfers in MLS because I think it's just a really complicated, convoluted process. It requires a lot of experience if you want to do it well. And so even there, I think it's hard for foreign managers to come in and have maybe the control that they're used to or the control that they would expect. Uh, there was a great breakdown of this uh, topic on Reddit. Uh, one of the points I thought was really interesting, uh, this was written maybe a year or two ago, so hopefully it's still relevant. Of the 17 coaches to win MLS Cup, only two won it without any prior MLS managerial experience, and that would be Bruce Arena in 1996 when the league first started, and Peter Nowak in, in, Nowak in 2004 and he had played three years in the league. So even there, he did have some success. And on average, it takes a coach about five years to win MLS Cup once they come into the league. And that, to me, shows that it requires a lot of time. It requires a slow build and a willingness to learn. And I think sometimes you have kind of 
the next up and coming manager coming to MLS. And I don't know if they're coming here to be here for five years or 10 years. I, sometimes it feels like it's that, like that next step in the evolution of their career or the next step in that career. And I don't know if MLS always makes sense as that sort of uh, stepping stone to another larger league or another larger club. I think it works for players. I don't know if it does for foreign managers. And there is always just the added thing of how big the United States is, how weird the weather can be. And if you have a team in, I don't know, New England and like going to play in Houston in the summer, you can't really prepare for getting off that plane and the humidity and the heat and just what that's going to do if you're playing the next day and then flying back on coach. Like, I think there's just so many little wrinkles that are impossible to know are going to be those wrinkles until you're living it, until you're experiencing it. And then I think it requires a person to sort of double down and be ready for that fight and be ready to figure out those little nuances. And I think sometimes it's managers thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I don't really want to handle this anymore. I'm out. And so I think that also plays into it a bit as well. Graham, your thoughts on this one? I'm, I'm intrigued by the last part of Richard's question. Are there changes that MLS needs to make to further accommodate these foreign mm. coaches? I'm not sure they should. Um, I was going to say pay them more money is what I was going to say. To Joe's point of maybe the managers that they're getting from outside North America are maybe not good enough. If you look at the salaries of some of the managers, or actually all of the managers in MLS, they are by market value, if you look in European soccer, very much underpaid. A perfect example of that is Ronnie Dyla, who won MLS Cup last year with NYCFC. He has uh, paid half a million dollars a year, which obviously for most people is a lot of money. But for him at Celtic, he was paid um, two and a half million pounds a year. So what's that? Over three million dollars? So that is quite a large increase. Pound's pretty weak at the moment, Graham. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So... um, yeah, I think the, the, the salaries that these managers are, are being paid. I mean, Bruce Arena is the highest paid manager and head coach in MLS at the moment. He's on $1.2 million. For context, that would be roughly around, that would be just over what the Hearts manager in Scotland is getting. At the moment, Ange Postacoglu's on just over £2 million. I believe Giovanni Van Bronckers is on £2.5 million a year. And these, I'm, I'm drawing this comparison to Scottish clubs to show you it's not just Premier League clubs. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, clubs outside maybe the top five leagues in Europe as well. So to Joe's point, I think I, I agreed with everything Joe said about a lot of the barriers. He's covered a lot of that. But I would, I would also add in the salaries and the money that these co- uh, coaches are being played, paid. Sorry. I think I think I would agree. I think maybe boosting that salary helps. I also think th- this is said as a person who doesn't have a ton of inside knowledge of how these these uh, operations work. But I do get the sense that on occasion, MLS teams are hiring a coach because, hey, you had a ton of success in Argentina or in Mexico or wherever it may be. So come over here and have that same success when that manager arrives. Or maybe it's even in the interview. There's a conversation about, yeah, I did that, but I had to restructure the the youth system i had to get players like uh better nutrition we had to change the sleeping patterns we had to do this and this and this and get them on this and and i think in the moment you're excited yeah we're gonna do all that like this is a motivational manager but then when push comes to shove i just i just see a lot of situations in which it feels like they're just getting a ton of notes it's like a hollywood script that just keeps getting noted to death and ultimately you get a completely different script than you started out with it does seem to me like sometimes managers are brought in with the expectation of win with the system you had in place at the last club but we're not really going to empower you or allow you to 
do all of the other things that allowed that system to exist. And and sometimes that can be for the good, as Joe said with Gabriel Hinze. I think some of the decisions he was making didn't make a bunch of sense. Uh, but I think also there can be the situation in which you're asking a, a person to play, you know, high-pressing uh, so, soccer, but eh, we can't really afford extra training sessions. We can't really afford extra players to fill out that squad. So you kind of got to do it with what you got. And, and I think oftentimes that's what managers are asked to do is figure it out on the fly. And I think if you're a the Elsa disciple with a lot of structure and how you want things to operate, I'm not sure those two things are, uh, I guess, destined for a happy future. Interesting stuff. Thank you very much for the question, Richard. We go now to Adam Yassiman, who says, this question is for Graham and Ryan. So be quiet, Joe and Taylor. <laughs> it seems like most of the conversation around the USMNT no. centers on which players will start or even be included in the roster. It also seems like the US has more players who come in and out of the roster than other nations. Do England and Scotland have the same conversations in the run-up to the World Cup? Or are the 15 to 25 national team players fairly locked in for better nations and scotland go for go for great so, so hurtful that last <laughs> bit was a punch in the gut um i think the conversations that us fans have around rosters for major tournaments are to be frank exactly the same as the conversations most other fans have including fans of, of other nations for instance at the last euros a big talking point was for Scotland, I'm talking about, was Ryan Gold. I thought he should have been included. He wasn't. I would say at the moment, Scotland have a pretty settled squad, but that hasn't been the case for about 15 years. And before that, before this current crop of players, it was a revolving door of players, some of whom you had barely even heard of. There would, For every squad, there would be two or three lower league England players that genuinely I had never heard of being called into that squad. Thankfully, we're not in that position at the moment. Where I do think there is a difference, and I think I might have said this before on the pod, but the, the biggest difference between the discourse around the USMNT and most other national teams, and I certainly believe this is the case with Scotland and England, is that the debate around the USMNT just never ends. When Scotland play a game and then go back to club football, Scotland is almost completely forgotten about. Yes, you'll get some comments if a player is in good form that this player should be in the next squad, but it's not the dominant discussion. It's not the thing if you uh, listen into the phone, the radio phone-ins during the, during the week. That's gener- generally not the thing that's dominating the discussion. It's always club football. Whereas it feels like the USMNT is always the dominant discussion in, in American soccer. And obviously it's a World Cup year, so maybe that's to be expected. But I'm even talking about last year and years before. It just feels like with the USMNT, maybe it's maybe it's the Twitter sphere as well. Maybe that's where I'm getting that sense. It just never goes away. It's there all the time. And I think that is, uh, that is a big difference. Yeah, that's completely fair, actually. It's the same with the England team. It's uh, an obsession for two weeks every couple of months and then uh, completely drops off the radar because, as you say, the domestic game takes precedent. Um, in terms of the actual answer to Adam's question, I think I, I kind of agree with where, he, where he's coming from. Like For England, for example, there's been some big controversial moves in the past, like Paul Gascoigne being left out of France 98. David Beckham was dropped a couple of times. I think he was dropped by Fabio Capello and Steve McLaren, if memory serves me correct. But generally speaking, these days in the Southgate era... There's, there might be a few questions as to who starts in midfield. You know, there's the mm. rule of don't let Tamori play centre-back, even if he's in much better form than all the others. Um, that's a pretty strict rule. Um, but there's it, 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 only a few players here and there where the variance comes in, I feel. Am I being fair there, Greg? Is, is that maybe because England and the European nations have largely got rid of friendlies? And I know mm. the Nations League is a thing in CONCACAF as well. 
But the US seemed to pivot more between a lot of different competitions. So the, the squad for, um, what was the winter one? I always forget the camp. What was the Christmas camp called again? Camp Joan Candy Taylor? Cane. Camp Candy Cane, that's it. Yeah, that was a very different a group of players to the one that would then play a competitive match so it seems like the US maybe have more of these camps they have more fixtures that as I say they seem to pivot and rotate their squad a lot more to maybe look at more players than some of the European nations would do because it feels like um, maybe I'm being unfair here but it feels like in, in Europe certainly from a Scottish perspective all of our games count and and they're competitive and Scotland need to win every single game and we can't afford to drop points which is unfortunate because we drop points a lot but with the US it feels like there's maybe a slightly more downtime where they do have opportunities to experiment like the recent friendlies against Morocco and, and Uruguay and even these nations games nations league games that are coming up the US does have that 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 comfort uh, that that area, the comfort blanket, I should say, sorry, to try things a little bit different and maybe bring some more players into that squad, whereas maybe England and Scotland don't have that. And um, Taylor, thank you very much for being quiet up to this point. I appreciate that. But do you think it's a good thing that the USMNT shakes things up a little bit more and there's a little bit more um, discussion, there's more openness to who may or may not be in the roster? Um, yeah, I think for the most part. I think Gra- Graham is right that I think with MLS being as like... It's not it's not a short season, but it's certainly not as long, especially if you're not a playoff team. It's not as long as many other uh, competitions around the world. So I think there is more space to be filled. And when you have a league that's competing at a different time than most of the rest of the world, that also is a a bridge that has to be uh, crossed. My my question for both of you I, I, I'm interested in is like, is that a U.S. thing? Is that a U.S. specific thing? The league debate that I think we so often have, because I wonder if that's part of why that kind of debate always rages on even after the squads are done, the friendlies are played, is the idea of, oh, he plays in MLS, so he's not as good. We should be calling in this kid who plays in Germany or Belgium or what have you. That seems to be a a unique thing to the United States in my mind of like, we have too many domestic players. We don't have enough domestic players. Is the domestic league good enough? Like, if anything, I see England as being the opposite to your point about uh, Tamori Ryan that it's like oh you play outside of England no thank you we only want <laughs> yeah. English players or uh, Premier League players you're, you're an Italian champion no we'd rather someone yeah. from Burnley <laughs> not for us <laughs> yeah so is that an Amer- is that like unique to the United States that sort of ongoing debate about domestic players versus players playing abroad so we have a similar debate in Scotland whereby we we tend to um presume that players that play in the English leagues are better and of course if you're in the Premier League and you're you're shining in the Premier League then of course you probably are better than anyone playing in the Scottish Premiership but Gordon Strachan was quite bad for overlooking a lot of the shining stars in the Scottish Premiership and in the the SPL at the time in favour of lower league English players which was very frustrating when you're overlooking players that are clearly better and they're just not getting in because of their their league status so maybe he would be in this comparison he'd be more of a Jurgen Klinsmann that was someone something that Klinsmann wanted he was always very open about his wanting his players to test themselves in in Europe and actually actively pushing them towards Europe so that was actually a discussion we had in Scottish football with Strachan but maybe not so much now just because the majority of our squad are either playing for Celtic or Rangers or they're in the Premier League so it's not so much of a discussion now. Yeah, and I think, Taylor, for England, it's not a big enough sample size to really answer the question because so few England mm. players, both now and historically, do play outside of England. Um, yeah. I mean, actually, I mentioned Gascoigne and Beckham, both of whom did and did play for England while they were outside of England, but they're like 
um, you know, that, that's not a general trend with the England team. So I don't know. Can't really answer that one. Sorry, Taylor. I mean, I, I appreciate the attempt, though, although I think if the shoe were on the other foot, I, the, I would be accused of fence sitting and half answering the question. So, Ryan, uh, some lovely fence sitting by you. Yeah, Welcome. just remember who's in charge here, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Adam, for the question. Wonderful one as it was. A couple more coming after this break. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. And welcome to this question from Eloise Stone, who says... Which teams do you predict will be in the top four next year for the Champions League? Uh, now, Graham, I think we've interpreted this as being the final four, the semi-finalists in the Champions League. So if we, to start for starters, take that as the meaning of the question, which I think is most likely the intent, um, where do you go there? I'll give you the bookies' um, feelings on it at the moment. The bookmakers say that Man City are the favourites, as they have been for, I think, at least four consecutive seasons now at this point. Uh, Liverpool second. PSG in third, and then Bayern Munich. Uh, And then in fifth, Real Madrid, Chelsea, Barca, Tottenham, and Juventus. There's some stuff going on there, Graham. But how how do you feel about the... If you had to call the final four right now, what would it look like? 
Yeah, so obviously this is largely dependent on how the, the draw unfolds. You rarely get the four best teams in a competition as the final four in that competition. However, for the sake of argument, let's just say it is the four strongest teams in the semi-final. So I agree with the bookies. I think City and Liverpool are there. I see no evidence to suggest that there'll be a drop-off from either of them next season. City are going to have Haaland. Liverpool looks like they're going to have Darwin Nunes, even if they lose Sadio Mane. So they're going to be strong. My third pick, I'm going with Real Madrid. I know Real Madrid won the Champions League last season, but I actually think in terms of their, their team unit, they're going to be stronger this coming season. I think uh, it seems like Chiumeni is going into Real Madrid. They've already signed Antonio Rudiger, so I think that fills a, not problem area, because Eder Militao was playing well last season, but he's an upgrade on Militao. I think they'll sign a new right back, and then all of a sudden you're looking at that team and there aren't many holes in, in that team and they've got depth, particularly in the centre of the pitch. So Real Madrid are my third pick. The fourth spot I found a bit trickier to predict. I just couldn't bring myself to pick PSG. They will find a way to implode, as they always do. Bayern Munich, there's a lot of questions around Bayern Munich at the moment. Maybe they maybe they flourish. Maybe they come out of this summer as, as a better team, but a lot of questions about them. So I've actually, I'm going to stick my neck out and say Barcelona. I think Xavi has, has really turned that team around. I think they'll challenge for La Liga ne next season because in the second half of last season, if you look at the points, I think they only got maybe two or three points fewer than Real Madrid in the second half of the season. And the other team I was between on this was, was Chelsea. I think they might be poorer next season after losing basically their whole defence, not just Rudiger, but Andreas Christensen and Cesar Azpilicueta. And there's the uncertainty around their ownership structure at the moment and whether how much money they'll have to spend. So it was between Barca and Chelsea, and I've gone for Barcelona as the fourth. All right, Joseph Larry, where did you fall on this one? So Graham and I have three of the same answers here. Liverpool, City and Real Madrid. I think those three are... Three of the best teams in Europe. I think they will be, and I think they certainly were this season. I also, Graham, couldn't bring myself to go with PSG just because it just it, it feels wrong. It feels wrong somehow. I did end up going with Bayern Munich. I thought about Barcelona. To me, I think we might be just one year early on that whole train. But, I mean, who knows? Knockout competitions are just a, a different animal, and so things can happen that you don't expect. But I also tried to go with the teams that I thought would just be the best in Europe overall and set the knockout craziness aside. And even with that, Liverpool, City, Real Madrid, and Bayern Munich, I'm really curious, and we talked about this a little bit on Monday, I'm curious to see what this squad looks like, what their offseason looks like, what their transfer window looks like in terms of who's coming and who's going. I think Julian Nagelsmann is a very good coach, and I know this season, this past season, maybe wasn't exactly what Bayern Munich would have hoped for in terms of some of their struggles in the league, despite still winning fairly handily, and then obviously dropping out in the Champions League to Villarreal. But on quality and on just the general competence of that club, Bayern Munich is that fourth one for me. I'm sorry that you weren't able to pick Villarreal for this exercise, Joe. Um, me too. I, I think I'm with you with City and Liverpool, and I think I'm with you with Real Madrid as well. I've got a sneaky feeling Tottenham might do very well next season. I know it's a knockout contest, and that's not uh, necessarily Antonio Conte's forte. But I just think this part in the cycle is probably going to be the last chance that Tottenham get to be really good next season under Conte. And I think they could just sneak a little further than people suspect. It's, it's, in the final four, there's often a team you wouldn't necessarily place in there. And for me, I'm rolling the dice on Tottenham. Taylor Rockwell, what are your picks? I'm doing something different. All of you all went Liverpool. I'm going to change it up. I'm going to go uh, City, Bayern Munich, Juventus, Real Madrid. What? Those are my four. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I look forward to being very wrong about Liverpool when they win the Champions League next year, and you all can rub this in my face. But uh, there, there is squad uncertainty there. And I, like, I, I think I said this to you all in, in the Slack. And I've said this before about Klopp. Like, maybe this will be the season that it all kind of, uh, everybody gets tired of the system. And then I think that was the year they won the title. So again, huge grain of salt here. But the, the Mane and Salah situation, I can't shake that their two best players both seem to, at least Mane seems to want to leave. Salah seems okay with leaving. And it doesn't seem to be a money thing by everything I've read, though that's what they always say. And then their agent demands double what's being offered. So who knows? But it just, there's more uncertainty at Liverpool than I think I am used to. And for for some reason, that's that's shaking my confidence in their ability to make it back to the semifinal. So instead, I think Man City will be Man City. I think Madrid will be Madrid for all the reasons that have already been outlined. Uh, I agree with Joe that I think Bayern Munich are intriguing because I, I'm buying into the idea that they're sort of trying to move this team the direction that Nagelsmann wants to, them to go away from sort of the old guard who had a ton of influence. And some of the the reporting coming out about the relationship between Nagelsmann and Lewandowski has me thinking that that, that that will end up being a smart move, even if he does score on them once or twice in the Champions League. Juve, I think, will end up getting Paul, Paul, Paul Pogba. I think they were figuring things out at season's end that I think will continue to be a strong team next season uh, with Allegri there and with a ton of the talent they already have. And I'm sure we'll get more somehow on a free for ridiculous uh, wages, but will end up, I think, being very strong again next year. So those are my four. Oh, wow. That's I, I like your narrative. I like your logic, Taylor. Do you, by the extension, have Juve being uh, Scudetto champs? I don't know. Because I, like, I, I guess if I'm being totally honest, I think we watched a lot of Ser- Serie A. I don't feel like I know the league still well enough and I'm w- aware of all the transfers that have happened to know who is really strengthening. If Lukaku goes back to Inter, I'm assuming that makes them significantly better, but who knows? So I think yes, but also Milan and Inter both seem plenty strong themselves. Oh, there you go, Louise. Uh, no consensus among the TSS team there. Maybe uh, Barra team. Man City, I think we all picked, right? So there we go. City yeah, and Madrid. Yeah. I think we all had Madrid, right? We all had Madrid too. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Wonderful. Uh, thank you very much, Luis. One last question for this show from RJ. They changed the rules of penalty shootouts to require the manager to take the first shot. Uh, this is a um, scenario being posited. This isn't actually happening, by the way, listener. Ugh. Yeah, I know. I was disappointed too. Which managers would improve their team's chances if this happened? And who would be liabilities? Um, I immediately thought, Gareth Southgate. Nope. He ain't <laughs> taken one. Graham, where did you go? <laughs> so you'd think... Lampard and Gerrard would be pretty good at taking a penalty kick, right? Considering they used to do that as players and their playing playing days aren't that far in the past. And I'd honestly take Gerrard and Lampard to take a penalty over some of the actual Everton and Villa players right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both of them. I've seen videos of Lampard and Gerrard both taking part in in training. Gerrard in particular doesn't seem to have... uh, he, He still looks like he plays. Um, so yeah, I would I would take either of those to take a penalty kick. I think Pep would overthink it. He'd take it with his weak foot because the data has told him that the goalkeeper <laughs> can't read it that way, but then he'd miss it or have it saved. I think Antonio Conte would be a liability because I can see him just smashing it, smashing it over the bar just through working himself up so much. 
And I definitely think Jose Mourinho has a panenka in him, followed by a single finger shush to the camera as a celebration. <laughs> I like it. I've got some numbers for you on those to support if you'd like, Graham. Uh, according to Transfer Mark, Stephen Gerrard has scored 46 penalties and missed nine. That's what we're talking about. He misses maybe a little under 20%. I can't run the numbers. I'm, I'm not smart enough. Uh, Lampard has scored 60 and missed 10. Uh, I don't know if Antonio Conte ever took one. Um so I uh, don't have any numbers on Pep Guardiola or Josie. Six for six. Uh, Pep was six for six. He's on my list of ones I would take. But Graham, I do appreciate your reasoning there in terms of like <laughs> maybe maybe that wouldn't end up being a good idea. Lampard, 86 percent and Gerard 84 percent. Ryan, oh, which you ran is the numbers. I did. I did. We both did Thanks. the same research. I just Point I just plugged them into the calculator. Um, <laughs> those two players, if you think about a penalty kick being converted between 75 and 78 percent of the time are well above average, like significantly above average. So I would take those two as well. I'm going to run through quickly the rest of the ones I have that would be good and, and wouldn't be good, and then I'll turn it back over to you guys since I'm already cutting in. I have Mikel Arteta as being a real plus here. Ooh. He was 29 for 34 in his career for 85%. Ooh. Now we're getting into some smaller sample size ter- territory, but I went for it anyway. Jesse Marsh was four for five in his career. I don't think he had to go through the running penalties thing, but even so, all the all the merrier. He at least knows what it is, oh, so he could oh, do he could do Joe, double duty. He did Bring do it. the halfway line. He penalties. did. He, okay. Uh, I yeah, have a nineties football literally tweeted a Jesse yeah. Marsh halfway line penalty Good. today. That's, Good. that's the video that bounce around, it bounces around Twitter oh, every so yeah. often is Jesse Marsh doing that, that penalty kick. Oh, yeah. every, time, every time it's time to scored. make fun of Americans again in England, that's what we get around on Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jesse Marsh is on my list. Pep is as well, six for six. And the other one, and this is the smallest sample size of any that I have, but Patrick Vieira for Crystal Palace. He only went one for one in his career, so he never missed, but he only took one according to Transfermarkt. But man, I just back Patrick Vieira, Vieira to do anything, basically. So I, I think he will be great from the spot for Crystal Palace. My liabilities, Xavi, he went three for five in his career for Barca, which is only 60%. Not great. Jurgen Klopp, I think, is going to be way too excited. The numbers are gone at this point. So Jurgen Klopp, I think he's just going to be way too eager and just hit it into <laughs> Rosie. Ancelotti, I don't know if he'd have the power. Maybe he'd have too much power and surprise me. And Bruce Arena, I just don't want him to touch the soccer ball. The end. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Very nice. Very nice. Joseph Larry Taylor, where did you go? Uh, A lot of the same names as you are. I did have Klopp making his, mostly just because he would run up and smash it as hard as he could. So it's going to be a a little bit of a coin flip because it's less about positioning, more about him just kicking it as hard as he can. Uh, I had Nagelsmann as the overthinker who would uh, then argue statistically that his penalty should have counted even if it didn't end up going in. I know he's not an active manager presently, but I would definitely back Zidane to bury his penalty if that situation uh, came to be. And another one that I think improves it, even if it maybe doesn't seem as obvious, he may be 62 years old, but I expect Carlo Ancelotti to light up a cigar oh. and then just look at the goalkeeper, and eventually the goalkeeper just walks out of goal and he passes it nice and calmly <laughs> in. Uh, f- and lest we forget, he was a, a fairly influential, fairly talented midfielder uh, for Milan and Roma. So, yeah, I think he's got some experience there. I do not know his penalty record, but I, I back him to put one in. I don't think he would have missed one if he took one, Taylor, frankly. Not with, that, he, with those eyebrows? Come on, come on. He, he never misses in all walks of life. I think that's a great pick. I like. I think I like Vieira perhaps as the as yeah. the best pick, Joe. The one for one record, hundred percent record is good. The Sam Allardyce record, in fact, uh, of of his managerial uh, international managerial tenure as well. So uh, very good there. Oh, one name I don't think we've mentioned, unless I'm mistaken, is Wayne Rooney, um, oh, Derby yeah. manager, who has scored forty eight and missed twelve. And I got my calculator out, Joe. I think that's eighty percent, which is quite Ooh. good. Mm. 
It is. <laughs> Good. All right. Yes. Thank you very confirmed. much. Math confirmed. 80% confirmed. Because you said above average. Did you have the average figure? I'm assuming it's what? Yeah, it's, it's like 75 to 78. I think 76 might be the number. It kind of depends on who's calculating it and all that jazz. But that's the right range. Got it. Very good. Thank you, RJ, for the question. Thank you for all the questions indeed. And if you have one, totalsoccershow.com slash questions is where you head to enter it into your internet machine. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your contribs today. Thank you, my friend. Joe Lowry, thank you, sir. Thank you. Graham Ruffin, thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And listener, thank you so much for joining us on this intrepid journey. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Slash it!